So today, a couple things in my head. You know, we're going to do a one-off today and then a one-off next week, and then we'll break for Christmas break, and then we'll come back in January and pick up on Sermon on the Mount. And so, so a few things have been bubbling up in my head lately just as I've been reading my Bible and I've been engaging in other things here at the church. The first thing was related to the email I sent out this morning, for anyone who read the email this morning, but uh, the email I sent out, uh, I quoted Ezekiel, the calling of the prophet Ezekiel. And if you ever want to just read a fascinating book of the Bible, uh, just working through Ezekiel is a really, really cool book. It's a tough read uh, at times. Some of the things Ezekiel has to go through are just horrendous. Uh, but it's an interesting book. And the calling of Ezekiel is something that every pastor ought to work through in a lot of detail uh, because the calling of Ezekiel is, is, is tough. And it helps you understand, especially for those of us who are being called to lead spiritually, it helps you understand some of the costs, some of the expectations of that. And so for me personally, uh, I've been going through Ezekiel in my reading plan, and this warning keeps coming up over and over in the book of Ezekiel. It says, pretty much to summarize, whenever God's calling Ezekiel to be a prophet, he says, hey, look, I'm going to tell you to go to the people and to deliver to them some pretty tough news. And, and the people you're going to, they're not people who are going to be glad to hear this news. Uh, they're not going to be excited about it. Uh, matter of fact, they're probably going to persecute you in, in different ways. Uh, but, but I'm telling you to go to them. And I'm telling you to go to them and warn them of something they need to know. And, and if I tell you to go and warn those people and you don't do it, and then those people die because of, of, of what they're going down, because if they're punished for those things, and you haven't told them what I told you to tell them, their blood's going to be on your hands, right? And so it's like, oh, well, thank you, God, you know, for, for that loving warning for, for as, I, as I go about your ministry. Uh, but he doesn't just tell him that one time in the book of Ezekiel. He tells him again and again. And so as a pastor, and for any of you guys who've been in ministry here in this room, it's something that you have to really think about as a pastor is, is we're judged by different expectations by God. It's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I, I've, I think I've told you guys a story before. One of the very first times I taught a lesson, uh, I took the audio recording and I sent it to Terry Fakes for him to just critique my lesson. And so Terry, in, in proper Terry style, you know, he gives me these little bullet point notes of different critiques. And the very first thing on his list, he gives me, he hands it to me, and he didn't have time to talk about it. He goes, hey, read this, and we'll talk about it. And so I read the list, and it says, hey, Blake, James 3.1 is a true statement. And so I go to James 3.1, and James 3.1 says, you know, not all of us should teach my friends, right? And, 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 and so I was a bit, you know, I was a bit shocked uh, whenever I said that, and I thought about just hanging it all up right then and there. But then I go on to read the rest of the passage, and what he's saying is not all of us should teach because those who teach are, high, are held to a higher account, right? I mean, the warning that God gave Ezekiel was a proper warning. He goes, I'm telling you to go to my people and to tell them something. You need to go do what I'm telling you to do. And so, you know, for pastors, this is just really important. It's important as any pastor that we're committed to teaching the whole counsel of God, right? All of it, not just the easy stuff. We've got to teach the whole counsel of God. But as somebody who's been in this for four years now, I can say nobody wants to teach the stuff that no one likes to hear. Like, it's just not fun. Uh, we all want to hug and sing Kumbaya together and have those special warm, fuzzy moments, but, you know, it's just not as fun 
to teach us stuff that no one wants to hear. And so as, as a consequence of that, unfortunately, we tend to only teach the easy stuff, right? And if you've gone to a lot of churches in America and pretty much the only thing you ever hear is a lesson from the Gospels and you don't actually hear that those stories where Jesus gets angry and those stories where Jesus doesn't act like your warm teddy bear, right? If that's all you've ever heard is the easy stuff, you haven't been taught the whole counsel of God. And then when these things happen where, you know, your obedience leads to consequences, your disobedience leads to consequences and and you experience these things and and the, the things you're experiencing aren't gelling with the God that you've been taught about, you'll realize you haven't been taught about the entire nature of God, nor have you been taught about the entire nature of your obedience. So I say all that just to say this. I've been convicted a little bit as I've gone through Ezekiel that I need to make sure I'm doing my part. I um, sat in a pastor's conference a a couple years back, and there was this this pretty well-known pastor who was speaking. And this pastor had actually gotten criticism uh, from a lot of people that he didn't make his church bigger. I mean, they, they said, hey, look, so many people want to come in. Your church ought to be 20,000, 30,000 people by now. You know I mean? Like, you need to make this bigger. And, and he goes, I'm not going to go over 10,000 people. And they're like, well, why not? You're just, you know, you're letting all these people aside. He goes, I don't feel like I could be accountable to God for more than 10,000 people, right? And, and, and there's, there's some truth in that. And so for me, luckily... I'm not accountable for all the people who go to crossings, but I am accountable for you guys uh, who meet here faithfully with us every Wednesday. So, so I, I, I caveat all this with, you know, what we're going to talk about today is one of those topics that is not necessarily a lot of fun, but it's a teaching of the Bible, and we need to make sure we get into these things. And so as the finance guy that I am, you know, and I'm thinking about year-end stuff as well, we're going to talk a little bit about financials today. And, and so... For me and my, if you take the pastoral side of my job out, one of the largest responsibilities I have at the church is to be the steward of our finances. And, you know, I personally, as kind of CFO Blake, uh, put that hat on for a second, there's a bit of anxiety I have right now. Uh, We have never, ever, ever in the history of our church gone the last two Sundays of December not in person, right? Well, I'll say the last Sunday of December and Christmas Eve where we are not going to be here on campus. And, And can you guys guess by chance what the two largest Sundays and events are for giving in the church? Anyone have an idea? No, Easter's low. No one gives on Easter. Apparently, they don't think the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. No one gives on Easter. You know, we get some $1 bills, but that's about it. The two biggest Sundays, the two biggest events for any church in America for the most part, but in particular for crossings as well, is, you know, Christmas Eve services and that year end. You know, that last Sunday right before year end. We collect, just transparency, we collect almost 20% of our entire um, offering income in the month of December, right? I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. And, and so, you know, look, I've, God has taught me every, every year I get a little anxious about year in giving because so much is tied up in that. And every year God slaps me and says, quit worrying because I've told you I've got this, right? Every year. But this year, like my worry level is a little bit higher because we're not going to be here, right? We're not going to be here. We're going to be online. And, uh, and, and so it's just, it's going to be different. We've put, a, we've put another risk element into it. And so I've been thinking a lot about giving, and as I kept thinking about giving, 
uh, I thought to myself, I would not be worried about this at all if I had complete confidence in the majority of our congregation thinking about giving the way Jesus thinks about giving, right? But that's actually probably not the case. Some, some interesting stats for you guys, and I have not run all of your giving records before I gave this stat, right? Just, just rest assured, I cannot tell you what any of you give uh, here in our church. I could, but I don't, right? So, but some interesting stats... 17% of Christians in America uh, will say that they tithe, right? 17%, which that's not a huge percentage anyway, considering you know, it's taught fairly consistently in the Bible. 17% say it. 3% actually do, right? 3% actually tithe. And, and, and for me, as a guy who reviews the giving and financials and everything comes through, that does not surprise me one bit, Right, I mean, the last time I ran these stats for our church, something like 40% of our church doesn't give anything, you know, and, and then of the people who do give, the median giving is less than what somebody who makes minimum wage would tithe, right? So, so you think about this church as well off as we are, you know, we're, we're not a congregation of 100% of us all giving 10% or whatever, you, whatever your definition of faithful tithing is. You know, that's just not who we are overall. But we have a lot of people who give as much as they can. We have a lot of faithful givers in our church, uh, and God's used it in incredible ways. Uh, but this aspect of our journey of faith, this aspect is, is, is something that challenges a lot of people. Uh, it's something where we're, a lot of us are disobedient with, uh, but it is a clear teaching in the Bible. So I wanted to, to dig into um, a story that Jesus uses, or actually, actually something that really happened. It's not a parable. Uh, I want to dig into to a teaching of Jesus that gets into this a little bit and maybe put a different angle on how we should think this through. What, I, what we're going to teach out of mostly today is in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 41 through 44, which is the story of the widow's offering. Uh, but what I wanted to do just before we get into that text is give you a little context of what's going on before we get to this story of the widow's offering. Jesus is in Jerusalem at this point in time. He's in the temple courts. Uh, he has just gone through a number of stories that you'll all recognize where he's just getting into it with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, he is making it very clear that they have misinterpreted the, the, the law, that they are not practicing it with their heart. They've been very legalistic. I mean, he is just getting into them. If, you kinda, if you're in Mark right now in your Bible, you'll see that this comes on the back end of them trying to challenge Jesus with, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, it comes with the Sadducees asking the question about resurrection with, you know, a man's married to a woman, he dies, his brother marries her, he dies, his brother marries her. They've got all these trick questions they're trying to trick Jesus into, and he keeps getting to the heart of the law over and over again. And so he's he's really putting some pressure on the religious elite to re-examine what they think of the law, how, how they're practicing the law. The story right before the widow's offering, if you look in verse 38, uh, Jesus says this, Mark 12, verse 38. It says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus is making it very clear. He's like, he does not like what's going on with the religious elite at this point in time. These guys are trying to do a lot of things for show, 
a lot of things for show. So they're, they're wearing the long robes. Uh, they are, they're, like I said, saying these long prayers. They're wanting to be these great orators. They're wanting people uh, to see them as, you know, not necessarily divine, but see them as this, this huge authority. And interesting, at this point in time, the, these guys aren't paid. They aren't compensated like I'm compensated for my job. Uh, and so because they're not compensated, they're actually really depending upon, upon you know, just general kind of love offerings and different things from a lot of people. And so for them, I think a lot of these guys kind of fell into the trap where they're trying to get a lot of attention from all the, the Jewish people in Jerusalem and, and trying to get a lot of handouts. I mean, so think about if you're competing with your fellow religious leader and you're trying to one-up him who's trying to one-up the other guy because you're trying to make the biggest impression on this one woman who happens to have a lot of money uh, and which one she's going to hand out her money to. You know, what does that sound like today, by the way? Trying to feed upon the, the donations of potentially vulnerable people? Anyone think about television evangelist at times, right? The TV pastors who, who could do a much better ministry if they could just have that private jet. You know, I mean, honestly, if we give these guys private jets, they can get across the, the sea and, and witness a lot better. Or, I mean, think about this. This is, this is people trying to one-up each other uh, for gains that aren't quite right. All right, and it's a slippery slope whenever you get into this. Uh, but we see the religious leaders doing things they shouldn't do. And for 2,000 years, we've been doing all we can to repeat their mistakes. Right? We, we just, the church, just we, we, you know, time and time again, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes. Not crossings, uh, but the church in general. So then we, and we see Jesus talking here about you know, them devouring widows' houses. So he makes a very you know, specific argument here that they're doing something wrong to the widows. And I, I was a bit confused on this passage, so I called the great Terry Fakes, and he didn't have a good answer for me. So, so but, but he and I talked this one through, and there were a lot of things the Jewish people were doing at this time. One thing they were doing is, is they were trying to always find loopholes in the law. And so one loophole they kept finding was, you know, we have this, this part of the law that says, honor your mother and father, right? You know, take care of your mother and father. And so people were finding loopholes around that because they didn't like the cost of taking care of their mother and father. And so what they would do is they would take their estate, their home, they would donate it to the temple. The temple priests would then allow them to continue to live in it, but their property was no longer their own. It was the temple's, and so they now no longer had this funding source to be able to take care of their parents, right? So they had this, this moralistic, you know, they said, hey, I've given all my money to the church, and so I can't take care of my parents. And they were standing on, you know, the loophole in the law they thought they found, but Jesus was really criticizing them because he saw through their heart. He saw what they were wanting to do. They were finding ways around being obedient to the spirit of the law. And so this kind of stuff is happening all the time. And so what it sounds like is happening here is the priests are finding ways to really exploit the generosity, to exploit the vulnerability of widows. Finding ways that when widows are behind on their mortgages, so to speak, to go and confiscate their properties. Right? Finding ways to generate their own wealth outside of the system and not following the part of the law that says to protect and take care of the most vulnerable, to protect the widows. Right? But, but using some sort of loophole to make it look like what they're doing is pious, is holy. All right, so we see just Jesus is not happy with these guys whatsoever, especially that they're taking advantage of widows, right? And if you, if you read the Old Testament a lot, 
you're going to find that God, God is not happy whenever we don't take care of widows, when we don't take care of the, of the, the people who are less fortunate. Right? He uses these illustrations time and time again. I mean, he, he condemns his people a lot for not looking after the most vulnerable part of our society. So Jesus is hitting them pretty hard there. And so that's the context. Uh, imagine yourself in the temple courts. Imagine the Passover feast going on and all kinds of things going on in Jerusalem. And Jesus is just hounding the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, making sure they understand they are not, they are not following the spirit of the law right. So that's the context as we get into the story of the widow's offering. And what I want you to do is I want you to pick out one of three main characters of this story, and I want you to pay really close attention as I read it to one of those three main characters. So the three options you have are uh, the religious elite, so the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, right? We're talking about the scribes here in particular, but think about the religious elite at the time. Uh, The other option is the widow, and the other option is Jesus. And we'll do a psychological analysis of which one of you don't choose Jesus uh, after this. But, but choose one of those in your head. Don't tell anyone. Choose one of those in your head. And I want you to listen for the details of that individual in the story as I read it. Put yourself in their shoes. So I'm going to start with uh, verse 41 here in the text. It says, And he, meaning Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury... And watch the people putting money into the offering box. And so I want you to think in the temple courts, there would have been, I think, 12 or 13 uh, different receptacles for different type of offerings that were very visible that people would be walking up to and putting money in at this time. So it says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I apologize, I messed up. Instead of the, the, the scribes, I meant to say the rich people. So if any of you had scribes in your head, read it as rich people. So my bad, scribes aren't necessarily rich people, but think about the rich people in this story. So, so let's break down those three different types of people, right? The, the, the rich people, the widow, and Jesus. So for anyone who had a rich, rich person, now that I've changed the rules of this game, what did you guys see? What stood out to you about the rich people uh, in this story? Any details stand out to you? What did they do? What, what, what was apparent to you? Do you want to have rich people, by the way? They were making a visible demonstration of their offering, Right? pretty clear. Anyone feel a little bad that the rich people are being uh, made fun of, or not made fun of, but are, are kind of viewed as the bad guy in this story? I mean, they're giving a lot of money, right? I mean, that's, that's something to be said for that, right? They're, they're putting in large sums of money in here. Yeah, motive. Question the motive of the rich people a little bit, which given, like I said, look at this, it says many rich people put in large sums, um, and the implication here is everyone's watching them put in large sums, right? With the way the way the process was set up, you know, for them to do this, it was probably set up so that there was some, you know, pressure to put in large sums. I mean, just just think about it a little bit. I mean, 
for how many hundreds and hundreds of years have American churches been passing the offering plate the way we do, right? And I know that there's always that small little implication in people's head whenever they take the plate. I mean, do you guys remember that, that, that awkward thing you have to do whenever you don't have anything to put in, and you're like, oh, and then, and then you see Major Duck, who's an Austrian, you're like, Major Duck, no, just pass, pass by, you know, go, go to the next row. You know, it's, it's a weird feeling, you know, whenever you don't have the offering, but I don't know if I'm going to let you speak. Yeah, well, there you go. So Major Duck says, if you don't have anything to put in the offering, tap the bottom, it sounds like you put something in. There you go. Well, that's the spirit, you know. So, but, you know, there, there's a little bit of pressure as people pass the plates that people are watching. They can see if somebody pulls out a big wad of bills, right? I mean, there's, there's something there. You know, I really like how we've got it set up right now, right? No one's going to watch you put your offering in right now. You can go by at any point in time and discreetly put a check in or anything or give online. No one's going to know. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But the rich people, the one thing we're kind of seeing from the rich people here is it's, people, are, people are watching. Right? I mean, they're, they're making it known what they're doing. But there's also something else that we see. In verse 44, it says this. For they all, and they're talking about, he's talking about the rich people. He goes, for they all contributed out of their abundance. Out of their abundance. And what that means is they had plenty to give. Right? They had plenty of gifts. So their large amount, they gave a large amount, but proportionally, they had plenty. Right? They had plenty. It didn't, it didn't hurt them to give. And so that's probably, if I kind of break down these three characters, there's kind of three major points here of this story that I think I want us to get. And the first one is this. We are meant to give in a way. If we, if we try to understand, if we try to use this story to understand what faithful giving looks like to God right? We are meant to give in a way that is sacrificial in its nature, right? We're, we're meant to give in a way that honestly, for, for lack of a better word, it hurts. It hurts, right? I, I get so many people who ask me all the time, how much should I give? 10%? And everyone thinks about 10% because it goes back to the Old Testament teaching of what a tithe is. And so I, always, I think 10% is a great benchmark. It's a great benchmark for what a faithful tithe looks like. God's very explicit about that. However, 10% giving to a millionaire is very different than 10% giving to someone who's working minimum wage and has three kids at home, right? It's a very different gesture. Who's giving out of abundance in that scenario? Right? The millionaire. A millionaire, to be able to live and, and do everything that they're doing and give 10%, it shouldn't hurt them at all. It may be some sort of implied hurt, but it should not really hurt them in any way. But for, a, for someone who's, who's, think about a single mom with three kids at home who's making minimum wage, to give 10%, that is going to hurt, right? It's going to hurt. Giving is meant to be sacrificial in its nature, right? I, I think a, bar, a, a lot of what God is trying to get us to do is to remember daily our dependence upon him, right? You know, I, I always tell people that I never thought I could tithe. Like I, it was one of those things of whenever I went from the corporate world to this world and my pay got docked by about 66%, you know, it was one of those things like, I, I, geez, I, I, what am I going to do? I mean, there's, you know, it just, the idea of tithing just seemed almost impossible, and what I found was, and just being completely transparent and honest, what I found was is there was all these things that I thought I could not do without, right? And it just, it, I mean, they were minimal mandatories. I had to have these things. And then whenever I actually put the pencil to paper and I said, I've got to be faithful with my tithe, what does it look like? What do I have to give up, right? I started giving things up. And it was amazing to see what God did with that. For a while, I gave up my ESPN subscription, 
right? This was one thing I could cut out. I could cut out cable, right? I could cut out these things. I did not have ESPN for a, for a long time. And you know what? You know what God did with that, right? For a while, I, w- I was spending like two and a half hours a day watching Sports Center. I mean, it was amazing how much sports I consumed. And then I, I found that whenever I got rid of my ESPN subscription, something I thought there's no way a man in his 30s could get rid of ESPN. You know, when I got rid of it, I tended to replace the time that I was spending watching Sports Center on repeat with time reading the Bible. And it was, it was so cool to see what God did with that time. And I know this is a stupid example, but there's all these little things that you go, well, I can't do without that. I can't do without a smartphone. I can't do without cable. I can't do without that nicer car. I can't do without these, like all these things we have in our mind that are, we must have, right, that we just think are impossible to do without. To think about what it looks like to faithfully give, you should be able to feel it, right? The guys who are walking up and donating all that money in the plates, Jesus was making it clear, they have abundance, abundance. They can't feel it. Right? And if you can't feel it, who are you depending upon? All right, so that's the big thing I get out of the rich guys. I want to always try to be careful in the Bible not to make it a story of good guys and bad guys. My kids always tend to think in the good guy, bad guy dilemma. You know, with comic books and, and cartoons, there's always a good guy and a bad guy. In this story, you're tempted to say, okay, good guy, widow, bad guy, rich people. And in, in the Bible, there aren't good guys and bad guys. There's one good guy and lots of bad guys, right? And we're all in the bad guy category, right? So what do we learn from these guys? The rich people were giving a lot, but they were giving out of abundance. So we have to make sure we can feel it. It should be sacrificial in its nature. So the second person I want to talk about in this story is the widow. So I'm gonna, let's just reread it and, and, and be reading for the widow. So, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So what do we learn from the widow? Anything stand out to you? Yep. And for you guys on Zoom, what he's saying is she got it. She understood the heart of worship. And I think that's right. I think that's right. Yes, sir. You give out of your heart. I think that's right. I think that's right. Any other, any other thoughts on the widow? Anything stand out? Yeah. And that's so on Zoom, he was saying, you know, really giving of your first fruits, you know, going back to, you know, Old Testament principles with New Testament heart, right? I mean, just understanding that as well. You know, the thing that, yeah, yes, OA. I think so. Yeah, so OA says, you know, she's sold out 100% to God. And I think that is a great lesson in all of this, right? She is clearly 100% dedicated to her God, completely dependent upon her God. You know, I think this is, you know, this widow is a bit of an extreme example, and I like that Jesus does that. He gives us these extreme examples. And, And so in this, I mean, she doesn't give much money at all. I mean, the amount of money she gave does equate to pretty much like a penny. I mean, it's, it's, it's pennies, if anything. I mean, uh, this was like one sixty-fourth of, of a denarii, which would have been, you know, one day's wage. I mean, this is, this is not a lot of money uh, that she's giving, but it was all that she had. And what struck me is that she didn't hold anything back for tomorrow, right? She, she, she didn't know how she was going to eat tomorrow. She didn't know how she was going to live tomorrow. She didn't hold any of it back. She gave it freely. Right, we're going to see another example later on with this, this kind of extreme idea of devotion to God with, you know, with a perfume bottle that gets broken and, 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 and spread over Jesus, right? And so we see this, she doesn't hold anything back to God. And, and I, I think that's, that's one of those, 
just lessons that you can use it with money, you can use it with your heart, you can use it with your time, you know, but, but to be a Christian means we've completely surrendered our lives to God, completely surrendered it. We can't hold on to something that was in the past, right? We died to the past. We are a new creation in Christ. She trusts him completely. And so you think about, I mean, you think about how often God tries to teach us this same lesson. I mean, he's breaking the people in the Old Testament out of the Exodus. Think about this real fast. You know, you think about these guys came out of Egypt as slaves, uh, had, had learned the Egyptian system. And in those 40 years in the wilderness, he's just teaching them over and over and over again who he is and how to depend upon him. You know, he says, you're in the desert. You don't have food, water. You don't have these things. I'm going to give you manna once a day. And by the way, you can't keep any of it for tomorrow except for, on Saturday, you know, except for as you prepare for the Sabbath. Right? It's going to rot for tomorrow. Right, so he, you know, he's teaching them all over and over again to daily depend upon him. And as I read this, I'm thinking to myself, man, for me as an application of faithful giving, I've got to be uncomfortable with the level of what I give. I have to be uncomfortable. It had to make her uncomfortable that she gave what she needed for tomorrow. Right? I need to be uncomfortable with the level of my giving. And for me, this freaks me out. You know, I, I got into accounting and finance in college, not because I like accounting and finance. I, I really don't like accounting and finance. I tend to be decent at it, but I never liked it. Well, I looked at accounting and finance in college. I was like, man, that's a way for me not to be poor, right? That's a way for me not to be poor. That's a recession-proof industry. You know, I can, I can make a good career out of that. I will never be poor. And I, I have always had a fear of being poor. I've never had a desire to be rich, I've had a fear of being poor. And it probably, you know, you grow up and you travel around rural Kentucky, you see a lot of people in abject poverty, right? And I just, for some reason, I, I just, I've always had that fear. So for me, whenever I, when I, personal application, whenever I'm giving, giving at a level that makes me uncomfortable, makes me, that fear come back to me all the time that I'm not going to have enough money to support my family. I'm not going to have money to, to do the things to keep up. You know, I'm not going to have what I need to be the provider of my family. But who is the provider of my family? God, God's the provider of my family, right? I have my part to play that he uses through me, but I've got to trust in him. Faithful giving for all of us should make us uncomfortable. Just like it had to have made her uncomfortable to give up what she needed for tomorrow. The third thing is, let's talk about Jesus. What do, what do you notice about Jesus in this story? Anything really stick out? He's, yeah, he's not happy, right? He's not happy. I mean, he's teaching this. I mean, you think about this. I mean, he, he only had so much that, that was going to get into the book here, right? And this, this gets in there a few times. But, you know, so, so, yeah, he's not happy about this. Anything else stick out? Use it as a teaching opportunity. Two big things stuck out to me on this. The first was this. Very, very begin. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the ter- treasury and watched. He sat down and he watched. Right? And I read that and just got a little bit of chills as I was going through it going, Jesus cares about this. God cares about this, this aspect of my life. God cares about this aspect of your faith. God cares about this aspect of everyone who goes to church with us, their faith. He sat down and he watched. Right? And, and so as I thought about that over and over again, this is one area in our faith that you can't fake. You just can't fake it, right? 
You can go to church here for decades and never give a thing to God and no one's going to say a word to you, right? You're not going to get a call from the CFO that says, hey, Larry, not saying Larry doesn't tithe, but I just saw I see Larry. Hey, Larry, I noticed in the last year you haven't given anything to the church. You sinner, would you like to start giving now, right? I'm not going to call you and say that, right? Marty is not going to call you out from the pulpit for not giving. Your Sunday school teacher doesn't know you're not giving. Your small group doesn't know you're not giving, right? Your kids don't know. Your uncle doesn't know. No, No one knows. Nobody knows. But God does care about this, and he knows, right? So, so I think about these things because I'm, I'm a quantitative thinker, and I've thought about, like, if I could put a scorecard on my faith, right? And this is, sounds like a very bad thing to do, but, like, if I could put a scorecard on my faith, you know, how would I rank myself on different things, which is a horrible way to think about it regardless. But the one measurement I have that I can't fake, right, is my giving, I can stand up here and act like I know the Bible and act like I care about the Bible. There's a lot of pastors who faked preaching for a long time. There's a lot of pastors who faked compassion for a long time who actually didn't believe what they were saying. I can fake that. I don't, but I could, right? I can't fake my commitment here. And, and I think we all have to, to see that as Jesus was watching. He does care about this aspect of our faith, and this is something that we get to experience between us and him, Right? You don't have to worry about what anyone's thinking about you. This is between us and him. If you don't show up for three weeks of Sunday, your Sunday school class may know, right? But this, nobody's going to know. Especially at crossings. You'll notice at crossings, something very important that we do is something we don't do. You will never see anyone's name on this building. You will never see a plaque. You will never see a statue of Marty outside, right? You're you're never going to see those things. The people who give a million dollars here, which we don't really have any, but if we did have somebody who gave a million dollars a year here, and the person who gave a hundred dollars a year, they're treated exactly the same, right? That's what we're called to be as a church. Uh, But anyway, God does care. And so for me, if you just kind of wrap those things up for just a little bit, and I think about what it looks like to faithfully give, it's going to get back to the fact that we give in a way that is sacrificial, not in a way that's just cutting out of abundance, right? We give in a way that we can feel it, right? What's the right level for you to give? Can you feel it? That'd be a good test uh, in your level of giving. You know, are you uncomfortable? Does it make you uncomfortable? And then third, make sure you realize this is something that God cares about. It's not one of those things that just the CFO cares about uh, because I'm worried about making the church budget. That's not it. Jesus tells us time and time again, he does care about this aspect of our faith. And I think one of the big reasons he cares is not to make sure the church is always well-funded, right? I, I don't think that's how, that's how God's economy works, Right? I think he cares about this because he knows how big of a sin is creeping all around us. The lion that is creeping all around us, especially in an abundant economy, is our greed. Right? God uses the tithe. He uses our giving as a way to get us to not depend upon the world, but to depend upon him. Right? And it is so much greater. He tells us time and again to test him on this uh, in our faith. But, but this is a great way for us to just push out the world push out that dependence and make sure we've committed our lives only and solely to him. And it will be sweeter if we do that. Also, I have, I, just as I read this story, what is clear to me is that God's economy works differently than our economy. You, you read this, and this will be kind of the last point I make here. He says this about the widow's offering. 
He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box. And when I, when I originally read that, you say that put in more, it's like in her heart she put in more. But that's not what he says. He goes, she put in more than all else that was put in the offering box. And what I really think is I think God can use anything for his purposes. He could... He could he uses money as a tool, he uses military as a tool, he uses kings and queens and rulers, all these different things he uses. But what he seems to really enjoy using, what he chooses to use more than anything else all throughout the story of his redemption of his people, what he chooses to use is our faithfulness. And so I want you to think about faithfulness as a currency, right? How how would it look If God says, I'm going to work through this church and I'm going to do incredible acts through this church and the the mechanism I'm going to use is not the amount of money you have in your general fund budget, but the amount of faithfulness that is in the congregation, right? That's That's the currency I'm going to use is your level of faithfulness. And so when Jesus is sitting there and watching her put that in, he sees in his mind, he doesn't see the money, he sees the level of faithfulness. And she goes, she put in more than all the rest. Right, so I think for, for all of us, we probably have a wide array of bank account levels in this room. We might have some big ones, we might have some small ones. I'm going to be more on this side of things, right? So we have this wide array, right? And this is great news for all of us. Right? God judges our level of faithfulness. He doesn't judge us by the standards of the world. He doesn't judge us based on how much our 401k has improved. He doesn't judge us based on how much we gave of our 401k. He doesn't judge us on those things. He just looks at our level of faithfulness. And only in Christ can the widow who was having her house devoured by the people where she had absolutely no power Right, think about this. God is taking this woman who represents a class of society that is being preyed upon by the powerful elite. Right? In his eyes, in his kingdom, she is not the least powerful. She's the one who contributes the most. Right? The widow who's, who's being taken advantage of is then in his eyes, in his kingdom, the one who yields the most power to accomplish his will and his kingdom. And that is great news as followers of Christ. Any questions on this lesson before I wrap up? Yep. Well, and you think about that. So the question for you guys on Zoom is just, you know, you look around crossings and you see that all's been done around here. And this is, this is a unique story, right? You, you look at what we get to experience as a part of this church and the school and everything. It's just incredible, right? I mean, it's amazing. And it's done with zero debt, right? All from the beginning, zero debt. And, and for me, I, get to, I know where all those dollars come from. And what's fascinating is there's not some one person who, who, who was the benefactor of all of this, right? It's not. We, we, we have some people who do better. We have some people who do worse, right? But, but our church is just made up of a bunch of people who, who, who give what they can give, right? And, and so for me, one of the most incredible things that I see is whenever I see the checks that are made out for $78.26, Right? The checks for $78.26, that kind of stuff just really gets to me because I know it hurts. For whoever who wrote that check, it hurts, right? It, it's something, it's, it's a fixed income person who's, who's paying it. It hurts, it's sacrificial, it's intentional, it's been prayed over, right? Like, and, and, and those are the ones, I bet God takes that and the faithfulness level of that $78.26 is out the roof and I, and I can only imagine what he does with it. And we get to look around and look backwards and see what God's done, but... 
the question I always get is people will look at this campus, different things, and be like, God, they don't need my money. And, and I'll say, no, you're here as a part of our congregation. What we need you to do is be faithful to the teaching of God, right? God's going to use your faithfulness, you know, and, and we need everybody because it's not just one person around here. It's a, it's a large, large collection of people making this a church just like any other church. <laughs> Literally, I like that. Jesus type of giving was a little fishy. Yeah, whatever he had to give, he just got a coin out of the fish's mouth, right? I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I've, 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 you, that's a great pastor joke. You go, you know, Jesus just could go manufacture money whenever he needed to. But, um, but it is, I, I would say, you know, this lesson, you know, very easily could convict some people. And obviously my goal is not to get you guys all to give more ear in. That's not what I'm doing. If you do, great, right? But, but that's not my goal. My goal, though, is just for us to make sure we take every aspect of our faith journey seriously and if you kind of sit there and you go, man, that just those aspects of giving, I don't feel like I'm nailing them. I just encourage you to pray about it, especially if you're married. Pray with your spouse about this, and don't be surprised if you disagree with your spouse on this. Pray about it together. Work through the word together. Allow God to convict you in the, in the ways he does, and then, and then just as you ask God for wisdom, be prepared to act upon the wisdom uh, that he gives you. But I know, like, for any of you guys in here who have ever been re- just massively in debt, I mean, for anyone who's ever been in that boat before, it's not a good feeling. And I know that at a time in my life where I was not being faithful with my tithe, the more and more God convicted me of it, the more and more I felt that weight of being in debt. Right? It was a weird feeling. And as I was faithful in my tithe, the way that that debt now just feels completely lifted and I feel free in Christ is an incredible, incredible feeling. To walk in the way that God actually tells us to walk with him, it's amazing that if we actually pay attention and do what he says, things will turn out the way he says. And so this is one of those you've got to trust him on. And it's one of the hardest things in the American church in particular for us to trust him on. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get out of here, and you guys can go have a more fun lesson next week. So, uh, Lord, I thank you for these guys. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for all the incredible examples you give us in the Bible. Uh, you show us what you care about. You show us your nature. You show us how to follow you. You show us how to worship you. Uh, and we, we appreciate the clarity that you give us. In this fallen world, though, it is difficult to follow. It is difficult to trust. And we ask that you would increase our faith for each and every one of us to help follow you in the way that you love. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. May you be with each man in this class. Keep them safe and allow them to return next week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, thank you all. Thank you guys on Zoom.